If you have your manuals, today we'll be looking at pages uh, 79. There we go. Page 79, I invite you to turn to James chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, as I gave my intro, you probably realize that today's sermon is a sermon that hardly anyone is preaching. Uh, really thinking about and concentrating on and trying to at least appreciate <coughs> suffering and its role in our life as disciples is really the antithesis of many mainline, popular, avant-garde, mega, successful, happening churches today. Most of the message is about how come to God and all suffering and all pain and all, all this, the struggles of life will all magically disappear like a, a fog in the morning. That is the message that many churches are, are teaching today. But, but here's something we must understand, that Christians will... They do, and they will continue to suffer. That's very much a part of the world. And I would even suggest that possibly Christians will suffer in this world more than anyone else. Because we have an enemy who's seeking our destruction, right? That the world hates us because they first hated our master. That it sets us up in a world that, that we're either enemies of God or we're enemies of the world. And, and so we probably stand in a place that there might be more suffering in our, in our lives. And here's a truth that I've come to believe and, and agree and hopefully will convince you of over the next couple of weeks. Suffering is an integral part of discipleship. And I will even argue uh, that there are certain descriptions, there are certain virtues that we as disciples are supposed to manifest and have, and the only way we grow those things is through the crucible of suffering. And so if we don't suffer and suffer rightly and well, we will short-circuit ourselves on being disciples. If you have James chapter 1, uh, you may notice that I, I'm guessing this is probably one of the most famous Bible verses there is when it comes to the idea of suffering. And it simply says, where did James 1 go? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So when we talk about suffering, this is the instruction of the Bible, right? Count it all joy, brothers. When, when you experience trials of various kinds. Now, we know these words. We've heard these words. You've probably quoted these words at some point in your life. But in my experience, this scripture is seldom the real expectation we have for ourselves. And it's rarely a reality that we experience. That there's not a whole lot of us that like get really excited and joyful when things start going bad. Right? That's, that's, we know we're supposed to, but we somehow don't quite get there often. And so what I really hope to do today, the reason the slides are all messed up is because I'm making them now. And so y'all just bear with me as I'm trying to learn to use this program rightly. I want to hopefully today lay out a five-step pathway 
to move from suffering to joy. To do this very thing that, that James 1, 2 says, a simple command, consider it joy when you have trials of various natures. I, I, just kind of five-step process to hopefully give us a, a, a direction how to move from our trials, to move from our pain, to move from our suffering, and see that there's some joy behind those things. And so the first step is um, to recognize God's sovereignty. So when something bad happens to you, when things start going south, when, when pain and suffering and trial comes, one of the most comforting things that you can appreciate is that God is sovereign. And we need to recognize that God is sovereign. Philippians chapter 1 verses 29 through 30 says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So this is Paul writing to the Philippians, and he's talking to them about he's in a conflict, right? Interestingly, that word conflict is uh, agon or agon in, in the Hebrew. It's where we get the word agony and agonize from. This conflict that he's in is causing him agony, right? Uh, the word for uh, for suffer there is, is a, has a broad term from everything from physical suffering to persecution to suffering under temptation and just having hardships in general. And verse 29 says, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. It's been granted to us. It's been gifted to us. How many of you, when you suffer, you go, man, God just gave me a gift. Woohoo! Right? That's not the way we often look at it. And what I hope you'll see is by the time we get done today is what he's granting to us. He's actually giving us opportunity. He's actually working on us. I think this is part of the molding process when he talks about, you know, he is the potter, we're the clay. Or this is the part of the pruning process when he talks about you are the vine and God's the vine dresser. All these ideas that God is crafting something in us and, you, and those things aren't always comfortable. And so he's granted us an opportunity to be better disciples. And so sometimes we just must realize that in those moments that God is in control and I can trust God. I can trust God when it doesn't make sense. One commentator said this about this passage. He said, everyone cannot be trusted with suffering. All could not stand the fiery ordeal. They would speak rashly or complainingly. So the master has to select with careful scrutiny the branches which, he, which can stand the knife. I'm just going to be up front with you. I disagree with this guy. <laughs> I think he's wrong. Because what I understand is all disciples, everybody I've ever met, it's not a select group that get picked out and chosen to suffer. Suffer. Everyone I've ever met has suffered and will suffer and if you haven't just hang on your turn will come as jody likes to say you'll get your shot in the pickle barrel right this is a truth reality god does it that is part of the world we live in and we suffer in all kinds of ways we suffer emotionally we suffer mentally we suffer physically we suffer psychologically we have all kinds of ways to enjoy the pain that this world so often gives to us but know this, God is sovereign, God is aware, God is able, 
And God is at work in the midst of our pain and our suffering. And recognizing God is in control helps us. The only thing that, the only problem with that is God wants to get us through suffering and not simply rescue us out of it or keep us from having it. He wants to use suffering to transform us and do something with us and not just, oh, you're hurting, let me stop that as quick as I can. That's what we want God to do, but God has a different intent in his sovereignty. Just think about Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me, right? We're going to travel through this valley, and, and, and it's going to be okay because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the first thing, the first step on this journey from, from trials and suffering to joy is just to recognize that God is sovereign. The second one is to anticipate suffering's arrival. 1 Peter 1, 12, and 13 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Beloved, disciples, don't be surprised when things go bad. Anticipate suffering's arrival. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. And so I, I kind of wanted to ask this question, why, why are Christians surprised? Why are disciples surprised? How, why do we need to be taught not to be surprised? And I think there's a couple of reasons. I think, one, there's kind of a seepage from the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement. Like, these are two popular things that are being taught throughout other churches around the world. Prosperity gospels, you know, believe in God, you're going to be prosperous, you're going to live the abundant life, everything's going to be good, you're never going to have, you're never going to have financial difficulty, you're never going to have physical difficulty, you're never going to have relational difficulty, you're not going to have any kind of difficulty, everything's going to be good because God died so that you will have an abundant life, right? And we know that's wrong, and we talk about that, but there's this like seepage, like, it, it kind of moves in on us. And though we don't really believe in the prosperity gospel, we really wish it was true. We, 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 have, a, we have a practical way of like, yeah, that's kind of what I expect, even though I know it's wrong. The Word of Faith movement is another movement where it talks about you have the power to enact faith and whatever you speak causes it. So if you want the pain to go away, just tell the pain to go away. It, it's... I've actually been thinking about doing an entire sermon just on the heresy of the Word of Faith movement because it's one of the most popular movements moving in our country and, and teaching a false gospel today. But I believe there's seepage over to us that we hear these things so often that we start to go, well, maybe that's really what it's like. I also think one of the reasons we uh, don't anticipate or we're caught off surprise, we just simply avoid thinking about it. We avoid talking about it. We avoid suffering at every case. And we do everything we can, particularly in our world, to insulate and isolate ourselves from anything painful. So we, we it's kind of like, you ever played hide and seek with a baby? You know, and you just go, huh, boo, 
And like when they put their hands up, they think you're gone. And we, we look at suffering in this world like, I don't see you, I don't see you, you don't see me, right? And then all of a sudden it happens like, well, where did that come from? One of the other reasons I think we're caught off guard is we have very wrong expectations. A lot of people believe God wants you to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. I find no scripture that says anything about God wanting us to be happy. It's not the main thing on his mind. God wants us to be holy. That's what he's working on, making us holy, not making us happy. And we expect God to be this, this like genie who fulfills our wishes and makes us happy and, and affirms everything we want and everything we desire and being always living in comfort. Or we have the wrong expectation of kind of a God's quid pro quo. Like, I do for you, you do for me. If I be good and do all the things you want me to do, you'll be good to me and bless me with all kind of, uh, without suffering. And if I do bad, then you're going to spank me and then I'm going to suffer. And we have this expectation that God is going to treat us this way. And it's large within the Bible. They thought when people were suffering, they were being punished by God. When people were being blessed, they, were, they, were, they had done right and God was honoring them. I once had a conversation with a, a man in my church, giant man, uh, six, seven, huge farmer. His hand was about the size of this table, right, you know, and uh, he got Parkinson's and uh, he was an invalid by the time I got there and his wife who weighed about a buck five, 105 pounds soaking wet, she had a lift with a with a strap that she would just raise him up and take him out of his bed and put him in his chair and pick him up and put him back in the bed. Visiting with him one day and he asked me a, a question. He goes, Jason, I've done everything God ever asked me to do. I served faithfully in the church. I was a deacon. I did this. I did that. I did this. And he said, I've only ever had one request of God. Don't let me become an invalid. He said, that's all I ever prayed for. Why? And I looked at him and I said, do you think maybe God wanted to know if you'd love him still if he just said no to you? You know, that he, he you, you, didn't, you didn't get everything that you wanted him for. Would you still love him even when he says no to this one request of you? And, and, the, and the expectation that we had is I did all this good stuff. Why didn't God do what he was supposed to do? Why didn't he reciprocate this quid pro quo? Like I behaved, now he's supposed to do his part. And then he's surprised when he's suffering in the end, when, when life is far less than it's supposed to be. It's a real struggle that we have, but I think it came from the wrong expectation. And finally, I think we are surprised because of misinformation. That we have been told or taught, we believe some things that just aren't true. We have misinformation on how suffering works. One of the things I hope that you find, in, if there's anything you pay attention, just notice how many times suffering and, and the expectation of suffering and the fact that Christians, believers are suffering, how many times that's referenced within the Bible. Because we're going through a bunch of these verses over the next couple of weeks. And just hopefully the, the sheer weight of the teaching on suffering will amaze you. But how many of you have ever heard this statement? God won't allow more than we can handle. Anybody ever heard that statement? Yeah. Anybody ever said that statement? Everybody ever used that statement to comfort themselves when they're suffering? I know God. I've seen a bumper sticker that said, you know, 
God won't give me more than I can handle. I just wish he didn't think so highly of me. Right? Well, the truth of the matter is that statement's absolutely wrong. It comes from a passage most likely from 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13 where it talks about uh, God not letting us be tempted beyond what we can bear. Right? But that with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so we don't have to give in to sin. Because why? We've been freed from the power and the, and the uh, penalty of sin, right? We've been set free from that. And so God helps us not give in to temptation. So the only way that applies is if the, if the suffering, if the pain and the suffering going on is in danger of leading us to turning our back on God, to denouncing our faith. Maybe it applies in that kind of situation. But here's the, what the Bible really says. Here's the truth about bearing, giving us more than we can bear. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 through 11, and you can pay attention to the underlined words, says this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, he will deliver, and, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must pray for us, pr help us by your prayer, so that many will give thanks on your behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul says, look, I want you all to know about this affliction, this suffering, this pain I was going through. It was so bad that we were not just beyond, we were utterly beyond our strength. We couldn't go much further. So God, Paul testifies, he had more on him than he could handle. Then he says, why? Should I stop relying on myself and rely on God? And so a lot of people are surprised because they believe they've been misinformed that God's not going to stretch them beyond what they can handle. But it's in the stretching us beyond what we can handle, we realize, I need God now. And so I think we probably get there more often than we'd like to admit. So we recognize God's sovereign. We start to anticipate. We're not surprised. We anticipate that one day I'm going to suffer. The third thing is we prepare your mind ahead of time. So now that I'm thinking and planning on suffering coming, I want to prepare myself for its arrival. Prepare my mind ahead of time. The Bible instructs us to often to be prepared about different things. It tells us to be prepared for the Lord's return. It tells us to be prepared to explain our faith to anyone who asks so we can tell them why we have our faith. It tells us to be prepared for attacks on the faith so that we can stand firm. There's an interesting verse in Hebrews 11, 7. Uh, it says this about Noah. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, is re uh, in reverent fear constructing an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes through faith. The Bible says that God told Noah something was coming. And so Noah prepared himself for the day of its arrival. So 
the Bible gives us lots of warnings and tells us to be prepared for different things. The truth of the matter is I get to interact with a lot of people in various circumstances of pain and suffering. Truth be known, it's probably the part of what I do, one of the things I do, this is going to sound really weird, and I don't know how to say it better, that I enjoy doing. Not because I enjoy it, but because I think it matters. There's a lot of stuff I do day in, day out in the office that I'm not sure matters a whole lot. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But, but being with someone in the moments of their pain and their suffering and trying to comfort and trying to guide and trying to assure and trying to help in whatever way I can, I think sometimes just being representative of God's love in their life is a help. I feel like that matters. And so it's part of what I cherish the most. Maybe that's a better word. Cherish is better than enjoy of what I get to do. But one of the things I, I, I've realized is I've dealt with people who are often surprised by their suffering, that things happen that they never expected or never anticipated, don't feel like they deserve, is, is the time to prepare for suffering is not while you're in it. It needs to be prepared beforehand. You know, and, and here in the same way that God warned Noah, Jesus is giving us a heads up. In John 16, in verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus very clearly throughout the, the chapter, John chapter 16, throughout the chapter, he warns them over and over and over that they're going to be hated. They're going to be mistreated. That they're going to suffer. He says, this is coming upon you. You have been warned. We have been warned. God has given us a heads up. Pain and suffering is coming. So let's prepare for it. Let's, let's start to think about it. Suffering is not something we think about. It is not something we want to deal with. It is not something we entertain. It, again, from my paper, in the Western world, we live hurried, hurried lives seeking quick results um, and tip and instant gratification. This attitude also carries over to how we deal with pain and suffering. Pain relief in the United States is a $63 billion a year industry. Just helping Americans get over pain as fast as we can. $63 million. Uh, one television commercial co proclaims it, this better than all. He said their slogan is, I haven't got time for the pain. And so the, our attitude tends to be one, we avoid pain at all costs, and if, if that's not possible, we want to get over it as easily and quickly as possible. We never embrace the idea of suffering. When the guy who wrote uh, The Gift of Pain um, studied around the world, he said that's a, a, it's a Western world phenomenon. Throughout the rest of the world, Africa and other countries, people wake up every morning expecting to suffer. They expect pain and suffering to be part of their daily life. And only in Western culture do we think we should be totally free of that. And so how do we prepare our minds for suffering? How do we start to get ready for its arrival? Well, one, we embrace that suffering's coming. Just in, it's going to happen. I prepare my mind to realize this is going to happen again so I won't be surprised. This is what I try to do. 
I start to consider how I want to respond, how I hope to respond. I'm not sure I'll do it, but at least I entertain the idea of this is what, when, when my day comes, when, when, when it gets bad, how do I want to behave that day? And, and I think about, well, if it's this, you know, if it's my own sickness, I hope I'll be brave. If it's the death of a loved one, I hope I'll be peaceful or, or whatever it is. I start to imagine how I want to react to its arrival. I look at friends and people I know. I had a, a, a good friend. He was actually my second father. Tom Santrop, uh, in his uh, early, late 40s, found out that he had all type of cancer just riddled throughout his body. I remember visiting him at uh, West Virginia University Hospital, and, and there he is. He's got like eight tubes. I think I counted eight different tubes coming out of his body, some lines going in his body, and he's sitting there. And, 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 the, and the nurse walked in that day, and he, with a giant smile on his face, said, so, knew her name, called her by name, and said, how's your day going today? And then asked about one of her kids, and so apparently he had this whole conversation. And, and, and in the middle of his hospital bed, when he's literally dying, he's sitting there talking to his nurse, asking her how she's doing, caring about her. I'm like, now there's a man of God. There's a, there's a man who's got hope that I don't understand, he's got peace I don't understand. That, that, that's the way to display your faith. And I'm like, so I, I hope, I, I, I consider how I want to respond. I, I hope I do it like Tom Sandrock did. Because I thought that was a good testimony of his faith. I, I, it assured me of that in those moments. I, the other thing we do is identify a virtue that we want to grow. I'll talk a little bit more about that and you'll understand what this is in a minute. And finally, pray. Pray, Lord, here's how I want to be. Help me be that. <laughs> Prepare me to be that way. Lord, I, I want to respond in my moments of sickness with quick care for others like Tom. Help do in me what needs to be done so I can be like that on that day. Lord, I, I pray that I, I abandon myself to your will. You're sovereign. You're in control. You know what's best. I give myself over to you, my whole self, body, mind, and soul. I pray for the Spirit to equip me to, to be a light in dark moments. I, I pray and release my fear and, and, and tell God that, look, even if the worst possible thing happens to me, Lord, I still want to love you. I still want to stay strong in my faith. I still want to be abandoned to you. And so I pray and talk to him about helping me be what it is I want to be as I embrace the coming of suffering. And in some kind of way, I hope I've conditioned my mind a little bit. So that when those days come, I've got at least some direction that I'm trying to head in. And I'm not just caught off guard and don't know what to do. The fourth part then is to learn. So we recognize God's sovereignty. Uh, we anticipate it's coming. We start to prepare our mind for its arrival. And we learn from the Lord. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2 says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in his flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer of human passion but for the will of god first of all since christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking it's a simple command you're going to suffer in this world you want to know how to do it well do what jesus did 
He was a man of suffering. There's a whole uh, uh, prophecy about Jesus talking to him, calling him the suffering servant. That is what he's known as, right? The suffering servant. Jesus suffered in every possible way that you and I will and could ever suffer. He has suffered physically. He has suffered emotionally. He has suffered mental strain, psychological strain. Think about in the Garden of Eden. He's, he's praying so hard that blood's coming out of his forehead, right? He experienced death and loss. He had a demanding schedule. He was misunderstood. He was mistreated. He was talked about. He was ridiculed. And he was betrayed by the closest people in his life. Jesus suffered. Right? He was lied to, lied about, lied on, and ended up dying on a cross for something he didn't even do. And how did he handle that? With grace and poise. And there's lots of scriptures that talk about him. And so when we think about, when we start to anticipate, how is it I want to happen? How is it I want to deal with my own and pain and suffering? We got a perfect example. Learn from the Lord. Arm yourselves with the same way that he thought. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us what God's up to. And it's often through our suffering. It says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That God is working in us to make us like Jesus, even in suffering and pain, which is the reality of this world. And the final step. Utilize. Utilize your suffering to grow as a disciple. That, that suffering is more bearable when there's purpose behind it, and it's just not for nothing. There's an interesting verse. I find this one very amazing. And in Hebrews chapter 5, it's verses 7 through 10. Verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The amazing thing is it talks about Jesus learning Jesus learning obedience. Now, does that mean Jesus was disobedient in heaven? Well, certainly not. Jesus has always been obedient to heaven. But his obedience tr was transformed in the days of his flesh when he was on earth because he was obedient in the midst, in the face, and in the presence of suffering. He never suffered in heaven. There is no suffering in heaven. And his obedience in heaven wasn't in the face of suffering. But he learned that. He experienced that when he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Lord, I don't want this to happen, but not my will, your will be done, right? This is an obedience in the face of suffering that he learned. And he became perfect because he experienced everything we'll experience. He never gave into sin. He was always obedient even when it cost him. Even when he was being wrongly accused and he kept his mouth quiet, right? Even when it came time for him to face the cross and it didn't want to go but he wanted to do the will of God. He remained obedient in the face of suffering. And over the next couple of weeks I'm going to cover some topics 
that I call discipleship virtues. That there's certain things that we as disciples, virtues that we are, are called to have, that we're expected to have, that we can grow. And you can only, in, in many cases, only grow them in the face of pain and suffering. Endurance. Well, how do you endure if you don't have something to endure, right? Courage. How do you develop courage if you haven't got something to be afraid of? How do you, sympathy. Sympathy is, is learning how other people, experiencing the feelings of other people. Well, if part of the way you experience how other people feel is you have the same experience. Then you're able to sympathize with them because you've gone through the same thing. And you can offer comfort and peace and ministry different than other people who haven't experienced that. Patience. How do you develop patience if you haven't got to wait? Humility. One of, the, one of the things that God values the highest is, is when, like Paul, and I think that's what we see Paul learning in that passage I read earlier where he says, I was utterly beyond myself so that I wouldn't trust in myself, right? I had to be humbled and turn to God. And so sometimes we need to just get over ourselves and get past ourselves and get to a place where we ain't that it anymore. Humility, God loves it. So he honors the humble. And that's developed through pain and suffering a lot of times. And, and we'll talk about that. Reliance on God. Just that whole, I need God. I can't do this. I'm hopeless without him. And truly, we are. And so over the next couple of weeks, we'll develop these virtues. So that when your time of suffering comes, as you prepare for it, you're like, Here's my chance to grow endurance. Here's my chance to grow courage. Here's my chance to rely on God more. Here's my chance to be humble. Here's my chance to, to learn sympathy and share that sympathy. And I'll look for a chance to share that and sympathize with somebody else once I get through this. Whatever it is, we'll learn some of these things that discipleship grows through suffering. And thereby gives suffering a purpose. And it moves it beyond just the pain that God, the sovereign God, is still working on me to be more like Christ. And if I can use this moment, if I can use this pain to become more like Christ, then that's okay. And so I hope that at least gives some idea, though we will struggle with this, I believe we will, gives us at least direction to move from our suffering to a place of joy. As we recognize God's sovereignty, as we anticipate suffering's arrival, as we prepare our mind ahead of time for how we hope and pray we'll deal with it, right? Then we can learn from the Lord how he did it, and he can be our model. And then in the end, we'll say, well, here's the virtue of discipleship, that, that I'm a better disciple now than I was before. That would make me happy, right? That would give me some joy that, that what I went through had an ultimate good and purpose. The truth of the matter is, that is a difficult path. Moving from suffering to joy, that's difficult for sure. Hopefully, I've given you some steps to consider taking as you move that way, but I want to give you one last encouragement. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And there are those, and those who find it are few. Right? The, the path from suffering to joy is a difficult path. But it is narrow and it is hard 
but it is the way that leads to life. Let us go live that.